Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Your partner actually survived every day of their life before they met you. And they had friends and they had a life and their house was fine. You know, if they weren't as tidy as you, guess what? They still survived in a house. They're not wrong and you're not wrong either. But how are you going to negotiate the fact that you're different? Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. This has been a long time coming, I feel like. I know. I feel like I've known you peripherally for a long time now, but never directly. This must be what it feels like to be a successful stalker, where you're like, man, I've taken all this time just hovering in the, in the, uh, <laughs> hanging around the edges. Yeah. Like I've known you for years now on Instagram and in the circles. And for the context, for you listening, Elizabeth Earnshaw is a renowned Gottman therapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist a clinical fellow at the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. You're an author. We also know that you're a massive contributor on Instagram in terms of therapeutic conversations, which are really powerful. And I've always really appreciated what you share. And also, I don't want to leave out that you are, you're the co-founder and the head of the Relationship Health of Ours. Tell me about that. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I started um, with two other people, a company called Ours, and spelled O-U-R-S, and we focus on relationship health. So we are building the relationships company. We started with premarital. So we support people before they get married to have important conversations, to learn the things that honestly we should learn in school that we don't learn. Um, but as we grow, we're going to support all of your relationships. So we want to support the relationship you have with your friends, with your family members, with your coworkers, because we believe that relationships 
make us live healthier and happier lives when they are going well. Amen to that. I think we all know that feeling when you're going to sleep and things are good and you're feeling it, but when they're not, impacts everything in your life. So I talked to couples who have been together for 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, recently I'd stand tacking on and he was talking about how uh, the failure of most relationships is the uh, lack of creating agreements at the beginning. And I thought, that's so interesting. Like, we don't really consider, you know, most premarital courses or conversations are usually delivered by the church. And no offense, but the person delivering them has never even been married or really in relationship. And I say that with love and compassion, but I'm like, that's not exactly who I want to get a premarital course from. You know, like every time you have a problem, turn towards God. Yeah, great. And so I'm curious, what are some of these conversations or educational trainings that you offer in ours? One of the things that is true, like you mentioned, is that the Catholic Church is the number one provider of premarital counseling. And that's wonderful for what it's the purpose it serves, right? Like it, it serves a spiritual purpose and it allows people, I think, to make a lot of agreements around how they want to navigate spirituality with their relationship and their children. But there's a lot more to marriage and to long-term relationships than that. And so just like Stan said, Stan Tadkin said, one of the biggest things is creating agreements. And that is a lot of what ours focuses on. So what are your agreements around boundaries? How do you navigate those? We often have people go through the program and their biggest aha moment is that they're going to have to start having a we focus and that maybe the way that they've allowed their parent to intervene in things or maybe the way that they've allowed friends or work to to take over priority is going to be impactful negatively to the relationship and so creating agreements around how do we want to navigate other people how do we want to navigate priorities that's a huge thing that we talk about we also talk about family of origin a lot and i think that's a conversation that it's going to be long lasting um i'm sure you know you're in a long-term relationship you are always going to have stuff come up where you're like oh my gosh i am totally behaving this way because of what happened <laughs> I, hate, I hate when, when I, was... I connect those things but i'm like ugh yeah as a parent especially <laughs> i'm a mom and it's like constant i'm like oh yeah, that was from when I was, you know, growing up. I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that idea is like I'll never be like my dad or mom. And then all of a sudden you say something and and you're like, oh my God, I remember yeah. my dad saying that to me, you know. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> very powerful. And so something we encourage people to start doing is to start being able to, in a non-blaming, non-judgmental way, talk about what they learned about relationships growing up and what was the good and what was some of the stuff that they want to change and how does that stuff play out? Where do they want to take responsibility? Where do they want to nurture it? Um, and we do it in a really compassionate way so that people are excited to bring in this person who has this tapestry of other people who have influenced them into their life instead of thinking, you've got to be just like me, which is a big problem when people get married is they start to think, mm, that's not how I would do it, or that's not <laughs> what I would say. <laughs> and so we have to get used to the fact that our partner is not us. That seems so simple. And yet it's it really does bring up a lot of resistance, I think, for us. I think especially when I consider Kylie and I, like she's 
tends to be much tidier, you know, just in general. She's like very tidy. And I'm like tidy-ish. I find that there's a desire for me to meet her at her baseline, which I totally understand. How do people negotiate that? Because I think my inner child goes, yeah, I don't, shouldn't have to change. Like, this is just who I am. (laughs) And for her, I'm sure it's the same. Like, she's saying, hey, my baseline is clean. Yours is clean-ish. Let's return to mine, you know? So how do we navigate that? One of the most common issues between people is that they have perpetual differences between them. This is something that Gottman has done a lot of research on, and that the majority of your problems are going to be problems like that, where it's kind of part of who you are. It's You're never going to be as t- tidy as she is. I'm very impulsive. My husband is very planned. Like He wants to know that on Friday, we're going to do something. On Friday at 10 p.m., I like to be like, did you know that this restaurant is still open? (laughs) We should go. (laughs) And that throws them off. But that's a perpetual difference that the two of us have. We will always have it. And so it's not so much about changing your partner. And that's where people get really gridlocked is they'll start to try to change the other person. They'll say, why aren't you learning to be as tidy as I am? That's the right way to be. Um, Or the right way to be is to be fun and impulsive and, you know, live life as it comes or the right way to be. That's you. But my husband would say the right way to be is to know what's coming up, to know how long you're going to spend there, (laughs) to really have a plan. And so he has survived. This is what I always say to couples. Your partner actually survived every day of their life with that difference before they met you. And they had friends and they had a life and their house was fine. You know, if they weren't as tidy as you, guess what? They still survived in a house. And so they're not wrong and you're not wrong either. But how are you going to negotiate the fact that you're different? And this is where respect comes into play. And this is where also understanding what is core to that person comes into play and caring enough about it that you can work around it. So for me, what is it about impulsivity? It's about having fun, right? And it's about sometimes just being able to take advantage of an opportunity. And for me, giving up being able to have fun and take advantage of opportunities would be a huge loss. What is it for my husband about planning? It means being responsible. It means being prepared. And so if I can remember that he cares about being responsible and prepared, when I'm having an impulsive moment, how do I still play into that for him? You know, honey, I'd love to go to this last minute thing. What would help you feel like prepared with this? If I promise that we'll be back in an hour, would that help? And so instead of figuring out how do I make my partner more impulsive or how do I make my partner cleaner or whatever it is, how instead do I care about what it is that's underneath that and put that into play when we're coming up against each other with our difference? Do you find, because as you're saying all that, I just consider how self-identity and just, you know, like I have these, I'm clean or I'm impulsive and I relate to your story about that. How do we remove the hierarchy that I think we often sort of moralize our own perspective or like my my cleanliness is a higher value or my planning 
is a higher value or my impulsivity is, you know? So how do we do that? Because I, 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 do we have, in your experience, do we have a proclivity to doing that? Yes, absolutely. And I think anybody on either side yeah, would do it, yeah. right? So the person who's messier is going to say, I don't waste all my so time on take that. Take like, life less what seriously. What a waste of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs to do their laundry when there's so many fun things to do <laughs> out in the world? <laughs> so we, we tend to moralize. We tend to think that we are right and other people are wrong. And I mean, you can see that everywhere in the world. We're so polarized, <laughs> yeah, right? True. The way I'm doing it and the way I think is right and you're wrong. And that's personal work, first of all, to do um, in order to be in relationships with people you have to actually learn not to be so polar all of the time. And you have to recognize that the point of relationships is that you have another human in your life. And the point of having another human in your life is that they bring richness of different ways of being, perspectives, all of those types of things. And so when you catch yourself getting polar, which is totally normal when you are moralizing that you're right and they're wrong and all of that, what can you do? to bring yourself to the middle and to think, and this is about people you love. I'm not talking about people who you think are horrendous, whatever. You don't need to come to the middle with them if you don't feel like it. But with people you love, what can I come to appreciate about Andrew that he's different than me? And it doesn't mean, and because we're used to moralizing, then sometimes what people do is they start to make themselves bad. So if my partner is great at getting up in the morning and I'm terrible, and I wish that they would sleep in. But then I start to say, well, that's really nice that they wake up in the morning. They go for a run. They're healthier. I must be wrong. Well, it doesn't mean you're wrong either. So are you able to stick with and? Are you able to be in the middle? And are you able to recognize we're just different? And how do these differences bring richness to our life? I'm sure the difference in tidiness between you and your partner, while it can cause friction, also probably creates richness because she is making the house really nice and helping you maybe to learn how to keep things up and how to make things look nice. But maybe there's things that you also contribute to her. Maybe she learns to rest more. Or she learns to play more or something like that. I'm just making that up. I don't know if that's, that's true. I mean, those are kind of the middles that we found, which I have a great appreciation for her tidiness. Who can, you know? And yeah, there definitely is the experience of bringing more uh, play and and looseness or relaxation versus, and for me, being a little more structured, learning the uh, line liberation through limitation, which when I first heard that, I was like, that sounds awful. That was made up by somebody who needs to be in control. And now I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> but it helps. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and okay. So when couples are beginning maybe to have these conversations or they're about to get married, although I would argue is probably important if you're starting a relationship anyways, but if you haven't had these conversations, definitely have them before you get married. What is the resistance that we have to doing that? Because anyone hearing, hey, like you should probably create some agreements, not just download the vows till death do us part and honor and obey and all that stuff. Is like really think about the vows and what you're actually committing to. I, I don't think that's something that the majority of people getting married do I, am I off on that? It feels like they don't like, it doesn't feel like we're proactive. It feels like we're shifting to that, but it's not necessarily what we inherited. 
It's interesting because I think we are shifting to that. And when we surveyed people as we were developing our programs, what we found is that a huge majority of people actually want that and they don't know how to do it. So one piece of it, I think, is not even resistance. It's that where do you go? You know, if you're if you're not in the Catholic church, where do you go to ask these questions or to get guidance on the conversations to have? So this is where the resistance comes in, is that what we heard from people again and again is that when we've looked for it, the only thing that seems to come up is something that feels kind of punitive or like we've, we're not in a good place. And so if we look at therapy, it feels like, isn't therapy just for people who have problems? And so we heard this from couples again and again. We would love to do something. We don't know what to talk about. But when we've reached out, we've heard from a therapist, you guys don't really have problems, so I don't want to be wasting your money. Or we've never gotten a call back. Or we looked at the therapist's profile, and the therapist's profile says that they work with affairs. And we just want to be proactive. And so I think with a big majority of people, they do want to have the conversations. They don't know where to go. There's also a group of people that are resistant. We found that in couples that are um, in hetero couples, that it usually has to do with the male. Um, and Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> and it makes sense because when women are growing up they are being nurtured to talk about feelings to talk with groups they are doing tea parties when they're little and again this is shifting in the world but we're thinking about the people who are adults right now they're playing with their barbies and having conversations and doing kitchen and da, 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 da. so there's a lot to do with talking about feelings and talking with others when boys were little they were kicking a ball or you know hitting nails on like a pretend <laughs> construction bench but there wasn't a lot of play that had to do with that and so already as adults there's a very different baseline of talking what do you talk about and what does it mean to talk? And so it's already uncomfortable. And then there's also this feeling that a lot of men, when we were serving, would say is that I'm really afraid I'm going to do something wrong. Women felt less like That's that. They felt less like, well, if something comes up, I feel like I can handle it. I can talk about it. But the men would say, I'm going to say something wrong and it's going to make things worse. I'm going to talk about my feelings and it's going to make things worse. And so I just don't want to do it. So the resistance, it often, I mean, yeah, there's a small majority that comes from they're a jerk and they just don't want to have to deal with it. But a huge group of people, particularly men, are so afraid that I love this person and I'm going to say something or something's going to come out and it's going to make this bad. I'm just thinking of my own experience. I remember when I first really started speaking about what I was feeling. When I would say something, this was with, you know, past partner the years ago. And I remember there being sort of reactivity to the first statement. And, you know, I thought to myself, shit, it's been 30 years that I haven't been doing this, 30 some years. Like, just give me a second. Like, I don't know exactly what the right word is. And maybe it's not the word I just said to identify my emotion, but just like I would then get dysregulated and then I would want to shut down. And so I do really understand that. But that fear of saying or doing something wrong, I mean, that just keeps us locked in a prison. How do we 
even begin to negotiate the edges of that? Yeah, it's really hard. And I it makes, like you said, it makes sense because a lot of the therapy world especially is female driven. And so sometimes, unfortunately, men have that same experience you had where it's like, why are you having trouble expressing your feeling right now? And like, you know, the guy's like, I, I think I said my feeling. I don't right, think I have anything right. deeper to yeah. say right now. <laughs> That's it. Um, <laughs> or their partner is so used to talking about feelings that they're talking at like 80 miles a minute and expressing and clarifying and clear. And then, you know, they ask a question and their partner who's getting used to that might say something like, I don't know, I just don't like it or something. And they're like, well, I just told you 20 minutes of my feelings. All you can tell me is you don't like it. And so that kind of plays into, see, I'm in trouble. I didn't do it the right way. And so one thing working with the edges of that is when we're having conversations, and this is for both, can we honor that most of the time people aren't giving short, crappy answers because they want to, that they're giving them because they might be flooded and the talking about feelings is comfortable for some and not for others, and it could feel threatening. And so flooding makes it so we give short answers. And just quickly for people listening, flooding is when we feel stressed and flooded. Our hormones, they start to surge, and so it cuts off the front part of our brain. Front part of our brain is the part that talks about feelings and problem solving and all of these types of things. And so what I talk to people a lot about is you kind of have to start there. If your partner is already nervous that talking is going to get them in trouble, that they don't know what to say, that they're not good at expressing feelings, and then there isn't a safe place to do that where things can be slow, where what is said can be somewhat accepted in the moment. It doesn't mean that's all you ever get. Then that flooding is going to stay there and your partner will be in a stress state. Now, if you can recognize this is stressful for my partner, then you can think what helps people come back online? What helps that piece of their brain turn back on so that they can think and they can share more and all of those things? And what helps is being validating, talking more slowly, using a calm voice, showing that you love that person, whether or not you're happy with their answer. You know, you might say, oh, I want to know more and I still love you. So a huge piece is when those conversations start being entered into, how can everyone in that partner, um, if there's a therapist involved, whoever it is, create a space where the body starts to say, okay, this is safe. There's not too much to be stressed about here. I guess this really leads to where I wanted to ask you next uh, was about how to have difficult conversations. And of course, I you've spoken a little bit about it. And I do find, you know, if our experience is that difficult conversations don't work out well for us, or that I get flooded, or I never give the right answer. And I really appreciate you drawing a compassionate lens to the experience of men, because I think often we, the messaging that we get about men is that they're broken, that they can't keep up, that, but yet, there's not been the level of development in terms of emotional fluency. And I've often found it a painful paradox that the things that our relationships most need from us as men are the thing that the world tells us to discard and makes us invaluable. You have to actually heal that 
incongruence of that messaging about your own humanity in order to have connected relationships. So if you're a man and you're listening and or you're a woman and identify with a similar experience or any human, that work is really courageous. It's so courageous. And having hard conversations, I mean, I think this skill of being able to actually start hard conversations because that might be the worst part is like the anticipation up until we finally do it, which we usually wait till we have no choice. And, and then actually doing it with not always with grace, because that ain't going to happen, but getting better and better, like developing a skill set. Is there some things that we can do to get better at it? And like, maybe at least ensure that at least, you know, our side of the street has tended to, and we're at least being compassionate to the other side. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things when it comes to communication, and this is the part where it's like, you wish it was taught in school, where some of it is just skill building. I mean, there's a ton that is underneath that, where you have to talk about what's being, you know, what the raw spots are that are being touched and all of that. But some of it is skill building, you know, it's really learning how to practice specific framing. I have to bring something difficult up. I don't know the words to say. Sometimes the best thing to do is literally go online and Google, like, what are the words to say? And I think sometimes that gets like pushed down as not being as good or something like that. But read the book, Difficult Conversations, Google, how do I bring this up with somebody? Because the thing is, is that it's not going to feel good to do it, or maybe it'll never feel great to do it. But the more that you do it, the better you're going to feel. But you're not going to feel good until you practice doing it in a new way. And sometimes that means mimicking something that you read or mimicking a person that you've seen or something like that. So something I always suggest to people is to really start to use framing. And for example, one thing that you could use that we teach in Gottman, so of course I'll utilize that as the example, but there's lots of examples, is when you're upset about something, talking about yourself and saying what you've noticed, saying how you feel about that, and saying what you need. And so if you can just use those three segment starters, then you're going to do a better job expressing all of that stuff that's going on in your head. And so what that might look like is, honey, I've noticed that the house has been way messier this week. I feel really frustrated by that. And I need us to come up with some sort of plan for cleaning it up. Or honey, I've noticed that we've spent all of our time cleaning the house this week. A lot of it has been focused on that and I feel overwhelmed. I need time to be able to rest. And so just using that can help you to start to get used to expressing what you're thinking and what you're feeling. When you hear that, the one thing that I hope you notice as you're listening is that it's all about you. So when you're having a difficult conversation, even if what you want is the other person to change, the most important thing that you do is that you focus on you, what you're noticing, what you're feeling, what you need, because by doing that, number one, you're much clearer. That is actually what's happening. And number two, you're making sure to reduce defensiveness. When we're having difficult conversations, we want to try to reduce defensiveness as much as we can in our own parts. And so for the person bringing up the problem, how do you bring it up in a way that is compassionate and fair and about what you're noticing and not pointing fingers? 
And as the person listening, how do you learn to have difficult conversations without being defensive? That's a huge part of learning how to have difficult conversations. And it shuts conversations down when we're defensive. And so as, as you're practicing hearing difficult things from somebody, their feelings or their requests, learning how do I take a deep breath and just respond with either validating what they're saying or by taking responsibility. You're right. The house was a mess this week. Or I could see why you would be exhausted with all of the stuff we've been doing around the house. I totally get that. And so if you can try those two things, that's going to help you to start practicing difficult conversations in a new way. When you talk about defensiveness, even the uh, gentle, beautiful entry into feedback and uh, dialogue about the cleanliness of the home, I already in the framing of it, I was like, whoo, you know, like can feel the, because I haven't ever heard that conversation before, of course, due to my clean-ish nature. Because you're always <laughs> Exactly. Clean. I'm so tidy. <laughs> uh, that, how, okay, because we got a Gottman master here and you're talking about defensiveness, you're talking about opening conversations well, how do I turn down my defensiveness? Because when I first started receiving feedback, which generally I have to say in defense of pretty much everyone I've dated, the structure of the feedback has actually been pretty good. You'd never know it because my reactivity was, my defensiveness was, my self-worth was so delicate, like not enoughness that I couldn't receive that and hold it and actually see that it was inviting me to be better and a better partner and a better you know friend or whatever it might be. Recently, I had Shervin on the podcast, who's the founder of the supplement company Symbiotica. And I discovered Shervin far before I discovered the supplement company. And I just fell in love with how he lives his life with such integrity and intention. And it made me dive deeper into his products. I kept seeing the brand pop up everywhere, and now daily I take the vitamin C, I take the D3K2, I take the magnesium, and I also take the creatine, but they have a whole lineup of products. The reason I love the company is they design sophisticated, organic, nutritional formulations that are scientifically proven to increase vitality and longevity, and they really fill the nutritional gaps that most of us have from our typical modern day diet. Their supplements are sourced from only the highest quality plant-based ingredients, and they utilize the most advanced absorption technology, which is really important to me. So if you currently take supplements or you're looking to find a company that makes great ones and sourcing from a company that has great integrity and uses organic products and the highest quality products, then Symbiotica, you got to give them a try. So if you go to symbiotica.com and you use the code GROVES at checkout, you get 15% off. So you just put in my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S, you get 15% off anything. I mean, they have so many different supplements. I'm sure there's the right fit for you. And you can get up to 45% off when you bundle a few products. So try out a few of them and see which ones you like. So again, go to symbiotica.com, use the code GROVES at checkout, and you'll save some money. So can you walk us through the things that come up? in, I think you guys so aptly call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which actually speaks to the significance of what happens from them in their extreme. So without uh, giving more of it away, yeah. Could you speak to that? Because I feel like it's very relevant to this. Sure. So when Gottman was studying couples, he's been studying them since the 70s, thousands and thousands of couples. What he saw is that there are four communication habits that tend 
to spell disaster for a relationship if they are not fixed. And I really like to emphasize that part because people will say, oh my gosh, we do these things. Doesn't mean we're going to break up. No, but if you do not curb them, then it leads to distance and isolation and then the relationship falls apart. So the four habits that he noticed, he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's a play on the end of times um, because it signals that. And so they are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. And they're very common. I do them in my relationship. I guarantee Mark does it as well because every human does. I am critical and sometimes I use contempt, which is Ooh, yeah, that one's it's bad. It's they so bad. all pair well um, though, you know. So it's like fine one. Yeah, the critical person is gonna be contemptuous and the defensive person's gonna stone. That's, that's actually exactly our framework. That's funny. Yeah, I've worked on it. I do not go there as often, but sometimes, you know, my nose shows disgust and it's not a nice thing to do and I know it. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think anyone listening will know that one. The eye roll, you know. The eye oh. roll. Oh, gosh. Yuck. Hate it about myself. What's the data I'm on eye roll? That. Is it the most predictive? The worst, Is it? The worst one. It's the most predictive of divorce. And if you're rolling your eyes right now, listening and watching this, woo, you better curb that. Catch those eyeballs. Yeah. Well, if you're rolling them at me, then, you know, maybe we're going to get a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> So, but I've worked on it, but yes, contempt, I'll start there. So contempt is criticism supercharged. So it is the worst one. It has the highest um, correlation with couples who divorce when it's done chronically. And what you can think of it as is it's really this state that people go into where they show disgust, they become belittling, and they're one-upping the other person. And so contempt might sound like saying something like, of course you would do that. That's exactly how you were raised. So saying something in a sarcastic, nasty way that's definitely meant to be hurtful. Contempt is our only facial expression that is not unilateral. So you can see it on somebody's face in that only one side of their face goes up and the other side of their face stays still. And so if you look at politicians, they're almost always showing contempt um, when they're talking to somebody else that is on the opposite end. So watch a debate and you will see their face. The one eyebrow will go up, one lip will go up, one nose and not the other side. The only behavior that's our face is the only facial response that's unilateral. Whoa, so only one side cool. goes up. I mean, not if you're facing it, but it's cool to know. <laughs> like even disgust. So disgust is both sides. Both sides of your nose will go up. Contempt is only one side. That's interesting. Yeah. They think it's because you're trying to mask it, you know? So you're trying to keep your face, but you can't. Is it particular to it. a side? I don't know that part. I wonder because I think is it left side is gives more tells online. Who knows? I I don't want to. That's misinformation from Mark potentially. So, well, everybody listening, look it up yeah. and see, or or watch your own contempt and see which side of your ask face your partner <laughs> which side of my face goes up when I uh, am disappointed in you. Yeah, yeah. Where do I? Which side? So it it's the worst one, and the way that we curb that though is that contemptuous people either learned that from growing up. So they saw their parents use contempt when angry. So a huge way to curb it is even just identifying that and saying, oh my gosh, I 
hated when my dad spoke that way. I am really going to work on that. Another reason that people show contempt is because when they're extra vulnerable, they don't know how to say their feelings. And so learning instead to narrate what's happening inside. So for example, something that's really helped me is to say something like, I really want to yell at you right now. (laughs) I am so mad and upset and I'm going to leave the room. Doing that can help you to start to internally identify what's happening so that you're not just registering that on your face Mm. and then saying things that mask your actual softer feelings. That's beautiful. It's very hard work. Yeah. It it sounds to me like then you're, is, is the, uh, the sort of process in that, is it that you're identifying the feeling, but giving like almost, uh, outing it. And welcoming it to the conversation instead of the only way we know how to communicate that we want to yell is to roll our eyes or, you know, put our face up or, you know, whatever we might be doing. That's beautiful. That process, you know. It's hard, but doing it that way is a little less vulnerable than saying, I just have to admit that I feel really disappointed right now. It's a little less vulnerable because you're almost the narrator of your own story. So you're saying... I'm really mad inside, but it's like you're almost separate from that. And then hopefully over time, you get much better at being able to say, I'm really upset right now. Like I need a second or what just happened disappointed me. I need to take a break. But contempt is a hard one. So you have to find ways to become more vulnerable in a, a way that's realistic for you, because that's much better than saying mean and abusive things to your partner, which contempt ends up being somewhat. It's really putting somebody down. So working backwards, actually, I'll go to the front. So the other one is criticism. Criticism is when you're taking a problem and you're putting that problem into the other person. So our house is a mess. The problem, though, isn't the messy house. The problem is that you are lazy. It's often shared in absolutes. So you are lazy. You are always late. You never think ahead. So you are the issue to our problem. Yeah, you always, I catch myself because I, I know that. So I know that one. So I'll be like, you're all, no, you're not. You're not always. That's perfect. So we all do this. And again, I'll keep saying that as people are listening, we all do it. But learning how to curb it is the goal. And what Mark just said is a huge hack. Catch yourself when you hear always, are, A-R-E, you are, um, and never. And then say, ooh, I'm going to stop myself. That's not fair. You're not always late. You've been late a lot this week, but you're not (laughs) always late. (laughs) So you can make it an accurate statement if you really need to, but stop yourself in those moments. And then what you want to learn is to do what I said earlier. How can you say what you've noticed what you're feeling and what you need. So I've noticed that when I've brought up these kind of spontaneous activities, it's shot down and I feel disappointed in that, or I feel frustrated and I need us to do some spontaneous things. Sometimes that's a completely different way to say the exact same message you were trying to get across, except it's more likely to be heard when you're critical normal human nature is going to be to not take that in and to just shut down. And so saying it in that other way increases the likelihood your partner's open to it. Now, paired with criticism is defensiveness. 
If I'm critical, my partner's going to be defensive. Now, some people are defensive even if no one was critical to them because they hear all feedback as criticism like Mark talked about earlier. And so it's how that person is experiencing it. But defensiveness is when we just don't take responsibility for our part and we try every which way to get out of seeing it and hearing it. And sometimes that means becoming countercritical. So you're always late. Well, you're just obsessed with being on time all the time and it's a pain in the butt. Sometimes it looks like completely um, punting another issue. So you're always late. Well, why haven't we discussed the bill issue this month? Mm, you know, you flip it. we're behind on our bills. So bringing it to another topic using but. Yeah, I am late, but X, Y, and Z. And the other is playing a victim. So you're always so mean to me. Why do you always have to pick on what I do? Da, 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 da. And then last but not least, people are defensive when they over-explain. So I was late, but you don't understand. My boss called me into the office, and then there was traffic. And then da, 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 da. When we're defensive, the other person is going to get more frustrated because nothing has gone in. And so what's going to happen is they are either going to amp up their criticism and they're going to say, you see, you still never listen. What's wrong with you? Or they're going to shut down and stop talking to you. And you don't want either of those things. And so while you might have really important things to say, maybe there is an explanation. Maybe your partner has been a jerk um, and is always picking on you or picking on you a lot. Those could all be true. And I, when I'm with couples and there's a defensive person, I say to them, everything you're saying right now could be absolutely true. And you might need to tell more of the story. And in this moment, that's not helping you. The best thing you could do in this moment is to take a deep breath and to either repeat back what you heard the person said, if that's all that you can muster, or take responsibility for their issue being real and for the little, little piece of it that you might be a part of. And it might, it might only be 0.5% that you can muster being responsible for, but say it. And so if I say to my partner, I've noticed that the dishes have been really gross this week and building up in the sink and I really need us to work on it. Is he able to say back his the little bit of responsibility? All he'd have to say is, you're right. I actually didn't wash them last night. It's not saying you're right, I'm a mess. You're right, I'm the worst partner ever. It's just saying, I didn't wash them. They And they are in the sink and they are a mess. So can you just identify what's real? You don't have to make stuff up. Working on that then releases that stress from your partner. They feel heard. And when it's the right time, they are more likely to hear the part that you need to add. Where later maybe you say, honey, which is our conversation earlier, it didn't sit right with me. The way you brought it up, I felt really attacked or whatever it was, but it's not going to be heard in that moment. So learning just to hear the piece in that moment is really important. If your partner is super critical and, and you're feeling defensive, say that. Hey, I really want to hear what you're saying right now. The way you're talking to me is not helping. Can you bring that up in a different way? For people who are really generally critical and they start those statements with like, you never, you always, is doing what you said earlier really helpful, that uh, naming the the I statements? 
Because, man, yeah. I know when Kai comes to me in that framework, I'm just like, I got all time, my love. I can hear all your statements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you're feeling really critical, it's obviously, and I think people know this as they're listening, but not when they're flooded necessarily. But it's much more helpful to say, hey, I noticed that the house is a mess. I feel really X, Y, and Z about it. And what I need is when you do that, your partner is so much more likely oh, to hear you out. Way better. Now, if they aren't, which happens sometimes, it's totally okay in that moment to say, hey, I'm bringing something up that's really important to me. And the way you're responding right now is not letting that in. So I'm going to bring, we'll talk about it later or whatever, but you know, you can point that out. Also, if you're defensive and your partner's being super critical, point it out. I want to hear you. But the way you're speaking to me right now is not helping. It's much better actually to do that than to get defensive. And this goes back to the other piece I said where you can narrate. I'm about to get really defensive right now. I want to explain myself because of the way that you're portraying me. And I don't want to do that. I actually want to hear you out. The way that you're speaking, though, it's it's really critical of me. And can you try to share it with me in a different way? I like to share with couples that you don't always need to be like Zen in the way you talk to each other. <laughs> like Eckhart Tolle <laughs> in a conversation with a, a Shaolin monk. I get it. Yeah. I think there's so much advice online. I, I get, I work with a lot of couples and like, they'll be like, but that's not the way Liz told you to say it. And so you're not doing it the right way. And I'm like, well, how was it said? I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so close. And that was human. And your partner was mad. Like you're allowed to sometimes have a raised voice. You're allowed to sometimes say, you know, I can't listen to you right now. People are human, but you just want to work more towards the the direction that you're trying to go into. So it's okay to say you're being critical right now and I'm getting defensive. I want to hear you. Can you try again? You don't have to be Zen and go, Ooh, okay. I hear what you're yeah. saying. And I <laughs> like deep breath, find your soul, hold yeah. on. And tight. Sometimes, you will. sometimes you will, but sometimes you won't be in that, that place. Yeah. I find with all the practice in the world, you know, that, I am, I can hear feedback really well now. I can sit with truth. I can take responsibility. I was a super defender and it was some of the most beautiful work to heal that because I, one, ended up in conversations I'd never been in before because I I got past the the part where I normally shut down or withdrew, which I know, I know you're going to get into. I finally was present beyond what I was so terrified of, which... I, I just found so much compassion for myself. And I started to discover that, gosh, the people you're in relationship with actually hold incredible wisdom about how you are in relationship. Shocking. Yeah. I know. But yeah. but just their brilliance, you know, to be able, no, of course, not everyone reflects the feedback or, uh, and some people connect through criticism, but gosh, when two people who are interested in growing and, and, and deepening intimacy are together, you can heal. I've felt that immense healing. And now I don't get flooded really very often. And when I do, I the words I choose are edgier, but they're still good, you know? But they're much better. Yeah. Like I don't, I never really get overtly flooded and reactive. I, I Even with the internet, I don't. 
Not as much. Yeah. A little more on the internet, though. Isn't that interesting? Because I, I don't really get flooded in my, my marriage or with my friends or family members at all anymore. Um, but with the internet, I get flooded. Right? I think it's because someone with a cat profile picture is delivering some sort of criticism, never in the space of anonymity, having never really earned the right to give me any feedback, which is often structured in name calling and- And very uh, long blocks of text, which is- Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I have good boundaries with that stuff. I just feel into yeah. it because I've learned so much from a random stranger delivering thoughtful, sure. constructive feedback, thoughtful, constructive feedback. And I've also yeah. blocked plenty of people that it felt damn good. Yeah. I stonewalled them. <laughs> stonewalled ghosted them, them. Yeah, exactly. Which I think one thing that's really, and you can speak to it in the stonewalling, is often when I'll talk about something like ghosting, people say, well, I had to ghost because the person was this. And I'm like, yeah, we're not talking about you. Like if ghosting is for your safety or like the only way you can get away from someone who's highly... Uh, critical and toxic Psh, ghost all day boo 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 get out of there sure but yeah maybe we can you can touch on that with stonewalling because they are yeah similar yeah well and what you're talking about though when you're saying like i blocked people who are being harmful that's a conscious choice feels good right? too. it feels good it's a boundary and you're consciously choosing that you're saying i'm aware that this person is hurtful to me so i am going to block them What's happening with stonewalling most of the time, and of course, there's always the exception to the rule, is it's actually not a conscious process for the person who is stonewalling. They might be semi-aware that they're doing it, but stonewalling is most often first fueled by being flooded. And so what stonewalling looks like for the person who is trying to communicate with a stonewaller, it's a horrible feeling because you're sharing and that person is absent right? They might be sitting with you, but they're looking away. They've got their arms crossed. You know, you finish what you're saying and they're like, I don't even know what you just said. So they're just not present with you. It feels really bad. What's usually happen happening for the person stonewalling is that they are flooded. Whatever happened in that conversation for them, for some reason, put their body into a stress state. And again, it could have nothing to do with the, the person communicating with them. It might just be how it registers to them to communicate. And so slowly their body gets pumped or quickly, actually, their body gets pumped with stress hormones. It turns off the parts of the brain that allow you to communicate, access thoughts, show affection, use humor, all of those types of things. And so nobody can get to you because your partner might be like, hey, is this too much? Can I give you a hug? And a stonewaller is going to be like, no, don't hug me. Your partner might try to use humor. All right, I see where we're going. This is like us all over again. Da, 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 da. And your partner is going to go, none of this is funny, right? So a stonewaller can accept nothing that we can usually utilize in difficult conversations to keep the heat down. No affection, soft voice, expression of love, joke, none of those things are going to work because that person's brain is not online for that. And so when someone is stonewalling, they usually are not able to be present in any way. They start to move their body away. You can tell your partner is stonewalling if they cross their arms, if they're kicking their foot, and if they're looking to a corner. And all of those things mean that as a communicator, you don't need to waste oxygen anymore. 
And it's really important in those moments to recognize and to say, I think you are flooded right now. And so I'll come back and talk to you later. For the person stonewalling, their responsibility, and this is really important, is to learn how to self-soothe. Because even though this is a physical process and there's an explanation, you cannot continually stonewall your partner just because conversations are uncomfortable. That isn't going to work. Your partner is going to say, you don't care about me. We can never get anywhere. I'm done. I'm giving up. So you need to learn how to recognize signs that you're getting flooded before it gets to that point. So being able to say to your partner, I don't know why, but this conversation is starting to make me really overwhelmed early on. You need to learn how to use breathing to slow your heart rate, to be able to pay attention to your muscles when people start to get flooded, their muscles get tense. So while you're having a conversation, try to stretch your body out, you know, like allow your legs to fall apart, allow your arms to go to the side of your body. Once you start shrinking up, you're getting closer to stonewall zones. So put your arms out, let yourself relax. But if you can't do that in the moment, learning how to at least say, I love you, I need to take a break takes 20 minutes for all of those stress hormones to dump from the bloodstream. So you need to take at least 20 minutes apart, but then it's your job to come back and say, I feel better now. I'm going to try again. All couples should have a break agreement that they don't make in the middle of conflict. They make it another time (laughs) and they say, what do we do if we get into an argument where Either I'm super, I can't get out of how critical I am, or you can't get out of how shut down you feel. Like, what should we do? That way, you know it's coming. And that way, both people are able to take that break if they need to. When we don't turn towards these things with curiosity, when we let them sort of run amok, I think, you know, as you said, inevitably the cost is relational ending. If I remember correctly, is stonewalling correlated to more men? Yes. Yeah, more men exhibit stonewalling. Do you think that is correlated to what you said earlier too about just our our socialization and, and such? Yeah. Yeah. I think that for men at a baseline, of course not all, mm-hmm. but at a baseline, just uh, not having that same vocabulary and that experience of talking about emotions makes talking about things feel risky just at the baseline. Yeah. Wow. Because I think of all the men I know and then all the conversations I've heard from couples, often the stonewaller tends to be the male. And and gosh, healing stonewalling can be such a... Because I went from defensiveness to stonewalling. That's what I would do. And then I yeah. couldn't even get a word out. Like it was... Imp- yeah. I would just be laying there like... You can't get words out and your mouth gets dry. It's really bad. It's very uncomfortable. It took like these willing small steps to be so courageous to just like get a connective statement out or I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. And sometimes that would activate the partner that I was working through that with. And that would almost like reiterate the sort of struggle of it. To come out of stonewalling, it just, I mean, to come out of any of these seems like a really powerful healing process. And so what is the cost if we don't? And what is the benefit if we do? 
Well, the cost if we don't is that um, people go into what's called the distance and isolation cascade. And that means that over time, these things keep happening to protect themselves, people distance themselves. And you might have people that stay together for 30, 40 years, but they're completely distanced, right? Mm -hmm. So they stop sharing with each other. They begin to live parallel lives when they're together. It's it's just like completely silent or there is a lot of conflict. So they're flooded all the time with each other, either shut down or fighting. And then, you know, if they decide to kind of consciously identify it, they end the relationship. If not, they might stay in the relationship, but the relationship is over. They're not really connected anymore. Usually the person who was trying to bring up problems the entire time is the one who will leave the relationship first. So the, you know, it tends to actually research shows that women in hetero relationships tend to leave the relationship first, even if they, for very many years, were the number one person invested into it. And so the most invested person will leave. They'll eventually say, I'm not invested anymore. I'm exhausted by this. And it, that makes sense, right? Because they were more activated. So they're going to continue to take an activated route. And the person who's deactivated and shut down is going to continue just to stay deactivated and shut down. But the relationship ends. It either ends... Um, silently or it ends with a conversation, but it ends. So you're saying also, which I think we all know couples like this, that it ends, but they stay together. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of our parents. Yeah, totally. Grandparents where they don't even like each other. Yeah. I mean, my parents luckily split when I was in my twenties, which was good for them. But I, I know so many people whose parents, they live in the same house, but they are not together. They are separate and they're either at each other's throats when they're around each other, or they're just kind of blobs when they're around each other. And whether you actually divorce or break up or you stay in a relationship like that, those were obviously not the outcomes that you wanted when you started. And that's sad. What about within? Because I think we're ta- you're saying, okay, well, you have this one person who's been bringing the things up and, you know, due to socialization in many things that tends to be the woman due to being the more accurate barometer of the health of the relationship. And I think we can probably correlate that to survival for women often being based on, uh, the feeling of safety in relationship. So you wake up, you're 45, you got a couple kids, you've been married since you were 23, you know, which is the story of so much. Now people get married at 35 or 30, yeah. 30 which <laughs> I know a higher age of marriage is correlated to more successful marital outcomes, which makes sense. I mean, we do hopefully learn a lot as we age, but you wake up, you're 45, you've been telling your partner that you need something, you forgot about yourself. You didn't have agreements when you started the damn relationship, you know, so how to navigate growth, how to navigate, you learn about, you listen to this podcast, you learn about the four horsemen, you learn about, oh shit, I should have had those agreements. How do we, at least first, like, I I know you're giving us these great skills at initiating these conversations. What would it look like to become conscious at that age and, and do it with grace? Wow. And I just want to hear your thoughts on this because I think so often we avoid this conversation because we're afraid the relationship will end, not realizing that the relationship 
has ended on some sense in some sense it needs to die in 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 a construct at least the way it was and so we won't bring it forward so i'm curious yeah what are your thoughts on that ramble yeah well it's challenging i work with a lot of people that are in their late 40s and up you know i've even had people come to see me in their 70s for that reason and it's often that the person who was least invested is suddenly the one making the therapy appointment and saying, I want things to change. I love you. I I wasn't a great co-parent when our kids were teenagers. I haven't been a good lover to you, like whatever it is. And then the other partner who was invested all those years will respond with, well, it would have been nice if you would have said that 20 years ago. It's too late, right? Yeah. And so that is really painful because your question is, if you're waking up to that and you're saying, I, I want to be different, it's already hard, but then it's really hard when the other person says, you never did it before, so you can't make it right. Mm, like I don't and trust you, I guess. I don't trust you. And I mean, that's hard for anybody to hear that, right? Like if you have a kid and they're like, I made a mistake and you're like, well, you can never make it right now. It's going to really shut them down. It's also a very fair way for that partner to feel, right? There's been like a betrayal. When we get into a relationship with somebody, unfortunately, like you said, we don't talk about this out loud, but there is an assumption that they're going to care for our feelings and that they're going to care for our security and our safety. And so when they don't, that's a betrayal, at least in our minds, right? We got married. You were supposed to care about me and love me and keep me safe. And you betrayed me for 30 years because you didn't do that. And so if you're awakening within yourself to, wow, I haven't been available. I haven't been connected. I want to be, you know, more connected to my, my spouse or my kids or whoever it is. One thing that you're going to have to reckon with is that people have been hurt. And that is the piece that people avoid. I don't want to talk about it because I know they've been hurt. But if I say it, they're going to say they're hurt. And then they're finally going to say that they're done with me. Mm. And I don't want to hear it. They are done with me. My kid hasn't come to Thanksgiving in six years and my wife doesn't talk to me anymore. So they're done with me. But they've never said they're done with me. And I don't want to hear that they're done with me. And so individual therapy can be really helpful to learning how am I going to receive painful feedback out loud? How can I look at the feedback I've already gotten that's been silent and recognize that that pain is there anyway? And what am I willing to do in atonement phase with these people who I wasn't there for? Not because I'm a bad person. And that's, going, that's really important as well as self-compassion. How can I be compassionate to myself and say, I wasn't there, but I didn't have the skills or I wasn't emotionally healthy enough at that time, or I was raising a young family and it was very stressful to me. And while I should have done differently, I never had anybody help me to do that or whatever it was. Have compassion. Let yourself know what makes sense about it. But if you're trying to reconnect, you're going to have to be prepared for, I'm sorry, I did let you down. I wasn't able to connect with you in the way that we needed, or I was distracted, or I didn't have boundaries. And then as you do that, the beautiful part is once you get past that, like Mark talked about earlier, once you get past the defenses, you get to go to the next stage of things, 
which is where you get to attune with the other person. So you never get to attune with someone if you can't move past your avoidance and defenses. You, can't, you won't ever attune with them. So I'm going to get past the defensiveness. I'm going to say sorry. I'm going to hear what I need to hear. But then the great part is, is after that, I get to talk about what I was missing out on. Maybe I get to share that I, I was feeling really unappreciated for a long time. Maybe I get to share that I was depressed. Maybe I get to ask my partner for what I need. And so as an individual, it's a hard process. But if you can get past the defensiveness, you are opening yourself up to the next the next level, which can help you to get close again. To think what's beyond that. Because you know, when I first learned about the four horsemen, once I got to know them and, and got to really understand their pathology... I was like, oh, these are just things we do to protect ourselves from being hurt. Like they're not actually meant to be, uh, like I'm not intentionally trying to be obstructive or destructive, although that can be the outcome of those behaviors. I'm really afraid of what lives on the other side and the depth and the love that's there because I associate it with pain or I've never seen it navigated. Or It's almost like we're just reliving a, a pattern in terms of communication. And I love what you said that beyond it, is what I mean, that's where the love is. The attunement part, I think, is really interesting because I think of from a child, from a child developmental perspective, attunement with mother and father, but especially mother is so important. And when I think about the patterns of who we choose in relationship, they tend to be people who wound us in similar ways to a parent. So I wonder if we ever really, if we're pursuing the same wounding, if we ever really experience true attunement, and I really, from maybe a more esoteric, but also uh, evolutionary perspective, that we continue to experience the lack of attunement in pursuit of it, you know? Huh. What do you think about that? Well, and everything you said is the interesting thing about humans and their attempt to connect is they often do what's completely counter to what they need to do. So they seek attunement by continuing to repeat the same behaviors that misattuned them to everybody growing up. So you grow up and you think, I'm not going to be like X, this person in my life because I saw how their relationships turned out. I didn't like how my dad was so cold and shut down. But then we repeat the same way of communicating where we might be cold and shut down with our partner, but we hope and this is actually, if anybody's interested in this, this is kind of the imago. I don't know if you ever... I haven't had Harville on yet, but I I uh, had a couple's, an imago trained coach on talking about imago dialogue and imago. But imago, I love. I think it's such a simple framework. Please get into it because people might not have heard it. And I'm not an imago therapist, but the framework makes so much sense, which is we seek out a similar type of person and a similar type of interaction style, hoping that it'll finally make us feel loved. Because if it makes us feel loved, then we've healed what didn't make us feel loved growing up. And so if you had a aloof parent, and that was very hard for you, interestingly enough, you are likely not going to look for a partner who's not aloof. And present, you're going to look for an aloof partner. And the reason you're looking for an aloof partner is because we are obsessed with trying to solve problems. And we're not conscious of this, but we're like, okay, my aloof parent couldn't love me. 
but that doesn't mean aloof people can't love me. I can get an aloof person to love me and we're not thinking this through, but that's what's happening. And so you find an aloof partner and then you go to them and you say, you don't give me enough attention. You never notice what's happening in our home. You don't respond to my emotions. And then your aloof partner was seeking you out because they had a critical partner right. <laughs> or a critical parent. And they thought I could find a critical person who really tells me off to love me finally. And then the two of you together co-create a lack of love again. And so your aloof partner is going, well, I can never do right for my parent. And look, I can't do right for you either. And you're going, I was never noticed by my parent and I'm not noticed by you either. And this is how everybody is in the world. And we create the schema that that's how everybody is in the world. Every woman is going to be critical and every man's going to be aloof because that's all I've known because that's what I keep picking. That does not mean you can't be in a loving relationship with that person. Right. You can, but you have to be able to say, I'm going to stop picking on your aloofness because I picked an aloof person. And instead, I'm going to just express what I need. And then as the partner, you have to be willing to say, well, I love you enough that I'm never going to be great at it, but I am going to work really, really hard to learn how to notice how you're feeling or to at least ask you how you're feeling. And that's where the healing happens is when you do finally have two people who are willing to say, I actually know that I replicate some upsetting things for you and I'm willing to take ownership of that and, and work on it. You know, my husband replicates things that are upsetting to me from my childhood and I replicate things that are upsetting to him from his childhood. But because we notice it, I can say, oh, I'm not going to talk to you that way. That's not right. And it's just repeating that crappy feeling that you get from it. And I'm going to work on doing this differently. Yeah, it's such a beautiful difference to orient towards your partner's horseman from the perspective of, I have compassion for where this comes from now. Like you get context, which of course you could, still say, I understand where it came from. And this relationship's not going to be a place where it stays, you know, where we, where we grow through this, where we heal through this. Liz, I could talk to you all day. Cause I'm like, I still have other things I want to chat with you about, especially in that context of staying and going. And I, I, you just offer so much insight. And, and so this means that we have to do a part two. I would love that. Yeah. It's been so great. <laughs> and I know for people listening, you'll want to catch the next one, which will uh, determine specifically where we can go <laughs> deep in. Because I'm like, I could go with you in one of those directions real deep. So thank you so much for, for coming thank on, you. for making the time, for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me. For the people listening, we'll link everything out in the show notes. But for the people listening, where can they find ours, which you discussed at the beginning as well? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Liz Listens. You can find me on my website, which is just my name. So elizabethearnshaw.com. That's easy because it links to everything. If you want to read my book, it's everywhere books are sold. It's called I Want This to Work. And then ours is withours.com. So W-I-T-H-O-U-R-S. Beautiful. All right. We're going to link all that out. Liz, thank you again. Thank you. 